If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 6. We're picking up where we left off last week and dwelling uh, down and digging down in verse 7, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung together with one heart and one voice, we ask that you would speak to us, and we thank you, Father, that you do speak to us through your word and by your spirit. So, Father, would you open our ears to hear your truth, open our eyes to see your truth, open our minds to know your truth, open our hearts to receive and embrace your truth, and strengthen our hands and feet that we could live out the transforming truth of the gospel in our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A word about the title, Church Growth 101. Kids, as you make your way through high school and maybe to college or trade school or some kind of training, you might have a course that's Economics 101 or um, uh, Philosophy 101 or um, Math 101. It, 101 is often a basic introductory, as it were, upper-level course. And so today you see the title is Church Growth 101. And if you had to pick out one passage of Scripture that kind of could give a good summary of what God thinks about the growth of his church, I think it would be Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So here we go with Church Growth 101. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear those two words? Church growth. Are you excited? Are you nervous? Maybe because you think church growth and you think uh, manipulation. Are you motivated or are you suspicious? You know, I think when most people think of growth, you think good. However, what about cancer? What about the growth of cancer cells? Not so good. But today, we're going to look at church growth from the perspective of God's Word, and we will see that it is good. Here we are in Acts, the bridge between the four Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, written around 60 A.D., We're in our series looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission. And we've been seeing how how what we're looking at in Acts helps us understand our, our family history. But it also helps us move forward in the mission that God has given us to to worship him, to welcome one another and to to be witnesses of the truth of the gospel. And here in Acts, 28 chapters, 100, excuse me, 1,007 verses, um, I hope many of you were able to read uh, this past week, maybe uh, Acts 1, 1 through 6, 7. But if you read the whole of Acts, it would take about two and a half hours. It's written by Luke. It's volume two, as we mentioned. And interestingly, Luke, a Gentile, a non-Jew, wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. If you add up just the words of, of Luke and Acts. What's Luke's purpose? Well, it's an orderly account in order to give certainty. It's not less than historical truth, but it's much more. It's given to inform our faith and strengthen our faith. Because 
We need to be reminded that that Christianity is grounded in God's acts in history. Other religions, it's just the teacher's words, his philosophy of life. No, Christianity is grounded in God's acts, what he's actually done in history. Because at its heart, it's what God does. And that's why Christianity is about good news, proclaiming good news, not offering good advice. Here we are in the book of Acts. Is it the Acts of the Apostles or is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Well, if it's the Acts of the Apostles, then maybe um, it, you don't think about the human element. But if it's, or excuse me, you do think about the human element to the neglect of the divine. But if it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, where's the work and involvement of humans? Well, that comprehensive but somewhat cumbersome title, I think, needs to be repeated as it's helpful. The Acts of the Exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church, founded by him through the apostles. And remember, Acts is a selective record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach. And when we get to particular passages, we need to ask ourselves, why did Luke include this? What's its purpose? How is it for the benefit of the church for God's people? Today is number 18 in our series, our look at all that Jesus continued to do and teach now by the Holy Spirit in the church, founded by him through the apostles. If you would, join with me as I read the first few verses of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 1, where I'll read the first five verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And now Luke, excuse me, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, as we saw last week, verse 7 is somewhat of a postscript to verses 1 through 6. God was pleased with the action that the church took. Remember, there was a problem that was identified and acknowledged and a, a problem that was solved. And a principle we saw about uh, different callings in the same ministry and the need to not be distracted but to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer for some. 
Well, not only is it a PS saying that God was pleased with the action of the church, it's Luke's first summary of six summary statements in his narrative. And it, I believe it captures the essence of what has taken place thus far in Acts. If anything, Acts is about the establishment and the expansion of the church as the Spirit-filled body of Christ. Now, how does Luke speak about church growth? Look with me again at verse 7. The Word of God increased. Some translations, the Word of God kept on spreading. And the, the form of the verb is one that's continuous action. It's not a one and done. It's ongoing. It's, it's continuing to increase and it keeps on spreading. And we see further that there's a multiplication. And we see the addition of many of the priests. Well, today we're going to consider three fundamental characteristics of church growth that we see in Acts. The church grew then... And the church grows now according to promise, despite opposition, and by changing lives. Let's look first that the church grew then and grows now according to promise. Remember the promise of Jesus that He would build His church. We read that in Matthew 16. I will build my church. Kids, pronouns are super important. Okay? I, that's Jesus, will build my, that is His church. I mean, right then and there, what if we always thought of this building, this place, this people, as, as God's building, God's place, God's people? Just think of the, the reverence and encouragement that that in and of itself would be. Now, the entire book of Acts we've seen thus far, it, it displays the, the, the vividly the truth of Jesus' statement that He will build His church. We're seeing it happen on these pages. It's the promise of Jesus the Son, but it's also, we see, the promise of the Father that the Holy Spirit would be sent Remember, between His resurrection and the ascension that we heard from Luke, Behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you. Remember, at the beginning of Acts, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Do you see how the promise ends, Luke, and the promise begins Acts? And he, we go on to read in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, the promise is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, God's people will receive power. And we've seen how the disciples, how the apostles changed as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, there's another promise, and that is that God's word would be proclaimed in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, they were to be given power for what purpose? That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember from lessons from the upper room, John 15, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and we see the Holy Spirit at work bearing witness 
about Jesus. One theologian, I think, summarizes the calling of the apostles to be witnesses and what we see in Acts by saying this, that the apostles were both to announce what he had achieved in his first coming, that is, to announce what Jesus had done in his first coming, and to summon people to repent and believe in preparation for his second coming. You see, it's the time between the already and the not yet. The apostles look back at what Jesus has done and they look ahead to what he will do in his return and they say, repent and believe. Now, why should it not be surprising that the church grew then and grows now according to promise? Think about the hymn we sang earlier, every promise will stand on every promise And speaking of promises, children, if you had to describe the Bible, the Old and New Testaments as promises, what would you say about the Old Testament? Promises, what? Made. And what do we see in the New Testament? Promises kept. And we see it all throughout Acts. The promises that the Father has made, promises that Jesus, the Son, has made, being kept, being fulfilled. So not only did the church grow then and grows now according to promise, but the church then and now grew and grows despite opposition. Despite opposition. Uh, Remember Jesus said, I will build my church. And then he goes on to say, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall shall not prevail against it. Now there's been a lot of wrestling with the way to properly interpret the gates of hell but I think if anything it brings to mind that the enemy of the church the enemy of God's people the enemy of God has a malevolent strategy and so at the gates of hell so to speak representing just hell itself are three tactics three tactics from the enemy first tactic is persecution Persecution coming from outside the church. Remember in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, Peter and John are before the council. They're in jail. And in chapter 5, verses 17 through 42, the apostles are arrested, jailed. They're threatened. They're warned. They're beaten. And all the while, the church has been praying for spirit-enabled boldness. They pray to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel, despite suffering, despite persecution, whether it's just two of the apostles or all of the apostles. One of the tactics is persecution, and we see that around the world in the church in China, North Korea, elsewhere. Not only is there a threat coming from the outside, but there's a threat coming from the inside through corruption, compromise, hypocrisy and deceit and we see that clearly in the narrative account of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 and what is the response it's sudden death isn't it it's sudden death people there was great fear there was great grace it was church discipline exercised as it were by God himself There's a threat coming from the outside through persecution. There's a threat on the inside through corruption, compromise, in the form of hypocrisy and deception. But there's also, as we saw last week, 
a threat through distraction. And it's going on within the ministry of the church. You see, if that problem had not rightly been identified and dealt with, when that complaint arose, you remember what the apostles didn't do. They didn't, they didn't just exercise power. They didn't uh, just send the disgruntled out of the church. They didn't encourage a church split. No. They worked a solution that was to the benefit of everyone, to the glory of God and to the good of God's people. Because there was a danger of disunity and division. We see that division of responsibility coming and a plurality of spiritual leadership and the balance of word ministry coming from the apostles and deed ministry coming from those who were serving tables. So we see persecution from the outside, compromise on the inside, and uh, distraction in the midst of the church's ministry. Well, you know, those same tactics are at work today, aren't they? You see, the word can't increase, disciples can't be multiplied, the church can't grow when persecution is not endured through spirit-endowed boldness and strength. The word can't increase and spread when deceit is not checked by truth, when deceit is allowed to, to foster and bring more and more people into it. When it's not checked by truth and church discipline. And thirdly, the word can't increase when the church is distracted from the ministry of the word and prayer. For many other good things, things that are good in and of themselves. Um, all of us travel for work, for vacation, and, and we find ourselves in another church. And I encourage you, when you're on vacation, when you're at work, make the effort be there amongst God's people on the Lord's day, if at all possible. But ask yourself, is what's going on, is the word central? Is, 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 it, is there a clear ministry of the word taking place? Is there a ministry of prayer taking place? There may be good things taking place, but is that central? A friend once said, you know, the church is called to do what no other human organization is called to do. Think about it. We have the message. We have the gospel. We have the evidence of changed lives. Yes, we can feed the hungry and we can shelter the homeless. And by all means, let's be involved in that as the men will be involved on Friday evening. But that's not our central purpose. It's the ministry of the word. It's the ministry of prayer. And so we see... That the church grew according to promise and despite opposition. Now, that's good and well and true, but, but how did the church, how did at the visible level, how did the church grow? And, and the church grew by changing lives. And we see that in two ways. Uh, number one, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. They're not described as converts here. They're described as, as, as disciples. Remember in the Great Commission, Jesus is calling to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age, to make disciples. First of all, none of us can make converts because conversion is the work of the Lord. 
But once the Lord converts someone and changes someone, we come alongside and disciple them. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. They are devoted to the teaching of the apostles, to the word of God. There's a growth. There's an ongoing repentance and faith that we will see unfold in Acts. And then in addition, in addition to the number of disciples multiplying greatly, we see a great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. Now, this is not the high priest and the the ruling priestly class. This is as it were, the ordinary priest. And, and there's been estimates between 10,000 and 20,000, uh, probably 18,000 is a good number with 18,000 priests and 10,000 Levites that are serving in the temple. And a great many of them became obedient, what? To the faith, to the call for faith that is proclaimed and contained in the gospel. You see, the gospel demands a response. Remember Peter's preaching on Pentecost. In chapter 2, verse 37, the folks that heard his sermon, they said what? What shall we do? What shall we do? And what does Peter answer? Repent. 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 You see... When someone is within earshot of the proclamation of the gospel, they they can't claim neutrality. They can't vote no opinion. They can't um, say, let me think about it for a while and get back to you. No, There, there is either a softening of the heart or a hardening of the heart. There's either a reception or a rejection. Because we've been seeing that life and death is on the line. Remember For some, Jesus is the aroma of life, and for others, Jesus is the aroma of death. And how? How did these many people change? How did the number of disciples multiply? How did the the, um, priests become obedient to the faith? Well, their hearts were changed. And when someone's heart is changed, their life is changed. It's the giving of a new heart. Some of you were with us a few years ago for a series, Changing Hearts, Changing Lives. And you saw that if the heart changes, the life changes. And that's what we see in Acts. So let me ask you this question. How do you account for the change in the apostles? Remember Peter Denying Jesus, all the apostles abandoning Jesus. How do you account for the change? How do you account for change in your life? I mean, to be sure, one mark of the Christian life is slow and steady, isn't it? Consistency. Doing the same thing over and over again. That is a mark, rightly, of the Christian life. But another mark is change. You're not the same person this week as you were last week. Are are you less angry and more gentle? Are you less annoyed and more patient? Are you less about gossip and more about building up others? Are you less greedy and more generous? You see, the gospel announcement of good news 
respond, we see the response of lives changed. Because lives are changed when the word of God that the apostles are proclaiming is applied by the spirit of God. The goal here that is taking place is much grander than how to have your best life now. It's much more beautiful and long-lasting than becoming a better you. No, the end result is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Becoming more like your Savior. Becoming an imitator of the Lord. It's preparation for heaven, isn't it? To be sure, heaven is going to be an abrupt change. No more sin, sorrow, death, dying, suffering. But in some ways, as you endure suffering now, as you put one foot in front of the other now, in the company of God's people, it is preparation for that day. So you see, the church grew then and grew now according to promise, despite opposition and by changing lives. So do you see that the church increased because the word of God increased then and now. Now it's interesting, isn't it? In a, in a book titled Acts, it's the power of the word that's emphasized, isn't it? What is the church known for today? Is it a love for and obedience to the word of God? Or is it, let's face it, it's all a part of us. Is it love for the world, obedience to ourselves? Is the church anchored to and powered by the word of God? What is the standard for the church, for any church, but here specifically for grace and peace? Now, you know, I like Navy illustrations. I don't know why, but I like the sea and I like anchors and I like engines. Because on a ship, you needed both. You needed an anchor so you wouldn't drift, and you needed an engine to get where you needed to go. And so that's the Word of God. It anchors us, but it also propels us. So next year, let's ask ourselves, how are we doing? Is the Word anchoring us? Is the Word powering us? May God be pleased to keep it that way. A few weeks ago, we looked at, actually a couple, several months ago, we looked at what in the world is the church. And remember, we came up with a twofold description, a community of people who worship God and who welcome one another. But you could also see that fourfold description from Acts 2 of a church that is a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, and a witnessing church. And remember, what is the first thing emphasized? They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. In other words, they were devoted to the word. Now, why is learning the first description for the church? Why is learning the first description? Because Christianity is what? A revealed faith. It comes to us from the outside. There's a priority of doctrine over practice. To be sure, practice is there, but it follows belief. It doesn't precede belief. In other words, you don't do the practice and then write the manual. You've got the manual that informs the practice. Because beneath and behind every practice, every action is a belief. 
That's one of the reasons why I believe our confession of faith starts with a chapter that might be surprising. Chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures. If you don't start there, we're going to be ignorant of everything else. So you see the power of the Spirit working through the Word proclaimed by Jesus and the Word about Jesus. And that leads to growth. The Word of God is at work. Remember Peter's sermon again. When the Word of God and the Spirit of God are at work, what do they produce? Remember? A conviction of sin, a confession of faith, and a congregation of believers. The Word of God, when it's at work, it produces a congregation. It builds the church, in other words. And Jesus, who I believe knew a thing or two about multiplying, is building His church by His Spirit through His Word. Now, in this first summary statement of Luke in Acts, we read that the Word of God increased, or the Word of God kept on spreading. So here's the question. Is the Word increasing in your life? Is the Word of God spreading in your life? We hear about the spread of cancer and we get terrified, don't we? Flip it around. Do we hear about the spread of the Word, of godliness, of holiness, of gentleness, of compassion, of generosity? Is that spreading in your life? Is there more influence, more control? Is the gospel, the word of truth, bearing fruit and growing in your life? As Paul writes to the Colossians that he is rejoicing that the gospel is bearing fruit. And if that's not happening, have you asked yourself why? Have you done a bit of self-reflection, of self-examination? Is the word of God working, spreading, increasing in your life so that your life is characterized by repentance and faith? Well, finally, I want us to notice this, that this first summary in Acts where the Word of God increased is not the last summary of the church's growth. See, that last summary is not even in the book of Acts. It's in the book of Revelation, and I'd like us to all turn to Revelation chapter 7. Listen to Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a summary. What 
a picture of the word increasing, disciples multiplying, people becoming and having become, as it were, obedient to the faith. And so my question for all of us today, myself included, are we singing this song? Are we singing the song that says salvation belongs to the Lord? Are we singing glory to him forever and ever? Are you singing this song? Do you want to sing this song? May God give us individually and all of us as a church an increasing ability as well as a growing desire to hear the music and to sing the lyrics of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. My friends, it is the one song that's being sung now that will be sung forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this one verse summary, this, these 23 words in the original language that give us a, a, a status report of the growth of the church, the increase of your word. Oh, Father, we thank you that your church here and now will grow according to promise, despite opposition, and it will grow by changing lives. Oh, Father, it's so easy for us to look at other people and wish that they would change. Help us to look in the mirror of your word and ask you to change us first. We pray this in the wonderful, mighty, life-giving name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus, the Word of God incarnate.